40. The Navy, and he retained the office through the early years of the reign of James I. In 1614 he became Chancellor and Under-Treasurer of the Exchequer, and throughout the reign he was a valued supporter of the King's Party, although in 1615 he advocated the summoning of a Parliament. In 1618 he became Commissioner of the Treasury, and in 1621 he was raised to the peerage with the title of Baron Brook, a title which had belonged to the family of his paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Willoughby. He received from James I the grant of Warwick Castle, in the restoration of which he is said to have spent L20.000. He died on the 30th of September 1628 in consequence of a wound inflicted by a servant who was disappointed at not being named in his master's will. Brooke was buried in Street Mary's Church, Warwick, and on his tomb was inscribed the epitaph he had composed for himself, Folk Greville Servant to Queen Elizabeth Consular to King James Friend to Sir Philip Sidney, Trophium Peccati, a rhyming elegy on Brooke, published in Hoofs and Edited Poetical Miscellanies, brings charges of extreme penuriousness against him, but of his generous treatment of contemporary writers there is abundant testimony. His only works published during his lifetime were four poems one of which is the elegy on Sydney which appeared in the Phoenix Nest 1593, and the tragedy of Mustafa, a volume of his works appeared in 1633, another of Remains in 1670, and his biography of Sydney in 1652. He wrote two tragedies on the Seneca model, Haleum and Mustafa. The scene of Haleum is laid in Ormuz. The development of the piece fully bears out the gloom of the prologue in which the ghost of a former king of Ormuz reveals the magnitude of the curse about to descend on the doomed family. The theme of Mustafa is borrowed from Madeleine de Scudery-Sibrahimuli Lusterbasa, and turns on the ambition of the Sultana Rosa. The choruses of these plays are really philosophical dissertations, and the connection with the rest of the drama is often very slight. In Mustafa, for instance, the third chorus is a dialogue between time and eternity while the fifth consists of an invective against the evils of superstition, followed by a chorus of priests that does nothing to dispel V.04P.0644 the impression of skepticism contained in the first part. He tells us himself that the tragedies were not intended for the stage. Charles Lamb says they should rather be called political treatises. Of Brooke Lamb says, he is nine parts Machiavel and Tacitus, for one of Sophocles and Seneca. Whether we look into his plays or his most passionate love poems, we shall find all frozen and made rigid with intellect. He goes on to speak of the obscurity of expression that runs through all Brooks' poetry, an obscurity which island however, do more to the intensity and subtlety of the thought than to any lack of mere verbal lucidity. It is by his biography of Sidney that Foot Grinnell is best known. The full title expresses the scope of the work. It runs, The Life of the Renowned Senior Philip Sidney with the true interest of England as it then stood in relation to all foreign princes, and particularly for suppressing the power of Spain stated by him, his principal actions, counsels, designs, and death, together with a short account of the maxims and policies used by Queen Elizabeth in her government. He includes some autobiographical matter in what amounts to a treatise on government. He had intended to write a history of England under the Tudors but Robert Cecil refused him access to the necessary state papers. Brooke left no sons, and his barony passed to his cousin, Robert Grinnell C. 1608-1643, who thus became second Lord Brooke. This nobleman was imprisoned by Charles I. at York in 1639 for refusing to take the oath to fight for the king, and soon became an active member of the Parliamentary Party, taking part in the Civil War he defeated the Royalists in a skirmish at Kyneton in August 1642. 
he was soon given a command in the Midland Counties, and having seized Richfield he was killed there on the 2nd of March 1643. Brooke, who was eulogized as a friend of toleration by Milton, wrote on philosophical, theological and current political topics. In 1746 his descendant, Francis Greville, the 8th Baron 1710-1773, was created Earl of Warwick, a title still in his family. Dr. A.B. Grossart edited the complete works of Foot Grimmel for the Fuller Worthies Library in 1870, and made a small selection, published in the Elizabethan Library 1894. Besides the works above mentioned, the volumes include Poems of Monarchy, A Treatise of Religion, A Treaty of Humane Learning, An Inquisition upon Fame and Honor, A Treaty of Wars, Celica in CX Sonnets, A Collection of Lyrics in Various Forms, A Letter to an Honorable Lady a letter to Grimmel Varney in France, and a short speech delivered on behalf of Francis Bacon, some minor poems, and an introduction including some of the author's letters. The Life of Sydney was reprinted by Sir S. Egerton Bridges in 1816, and with an introduction by Anne Smith in the Tudor and Stuart Library in 1907, Celica was reprinted in M. F. Crow's Elizabethan Sonnet Cycles in 1898. See also an essay in Mrs. C. C. Stops's Shakespeare's War which your contemporaries 1907. Brooke. Henry C. 1703-1783. Irish author. Son of William Brooke. Rector of Killinker. Company Cavan. Was born at Rontavon in the same county. About 1703. His mother was a daughter of Simon Didby. Bishop of Elfin. Dr. Thomas Sheridan was one of his schoolmasters. And he was entered at Trinity College. Dublin in 1720, in 1724 he was sent to London to study law. He married his cousin and ward, Catherine Mears, before she was 14. Returning to London he published a philosophical poem in six books entitled Universal Beauty 1735. He attached himself to the party of the Prince of Wales, and took a small house at Twickenham near to Alexander Pope. In 1738 he translated the first and second books of Tasso's Jerusalem Liberated and in the next year he produced a tragedy, Gustavus Beza, the deliverer of his country. This play had been rehearsed for five weeks at Drury Lane, but at the last moment the performance was forbidden. The reason of this prohibition was a supposed portrait of Sir Robert Walpole in the part of Trollia. In any case the spirit of fervent patriotism which pervaded the play was probably disliked by the government. The piece was printed and sold largely, being afterwards put on the Irish stage under the title of The Patriot. This affair provoked a satirical pamphlet from Samuel Johnson, entitled, A Complete Vindication of the Licensers of the Stage from the Malicious and Scandalous Aspersions of Mr. Brooke, 1739. His wife feared that his connection with the opposition was imprudent, and induced him to return to Ireland. He interested himself in Irish history and literature, but a projected collection of Irish stories and a history of Ireland from the earliest times were abandoned in consequence of disputes about the ownership of the materials. During the Shacobite Rebellion of 1745 Brooke issued his farmer's six letters to the Protestants of Ireland collected 1746 the form of which was suggested by Swift's Drapier's letters. For this service he received from the government the post of Barrack Master at Mullingar, which he held till his death. He wrote other pamphlets on the Protestant side, and was secretary to an association for promoting projects of national utility. About 1760 he entered into negotiations with leading Roman Catholics, and in 1761 he wrote a pamphlet advocating alleviation of the penal laws against them. He is said to have been the first editor of the Freeman's Journal, 
established at Dublin in 1763. Meanwhile he had been obliged to mortgage his property in Cavan, and had removed to Company Kildare. Subsequently a bequest from Colonel Robert Brooke enabled him to purchase an estate near his old home, and he spent large sums in attempting to reclaim the waste land. His best-known work is the novel entitled The Fool of Quality, or The History of Henry Earl of Moreland, the first part of which was published in 1765, and the fifth and last in 1770. The characters of this book, which relates the education of an ideal nobleman by an ideal merchant prince, are gifted with a passionate and tearful sensibility, and reflect the real humor and tenderness of the writer. Brooks' religious and philanthropic temper recommended the book to John Wesley, who edited 1780 unabridged edition, and to Charles Kinsley, who published it with a eulogistic notice in 1859. Brooke had a large family, but only two children survived him. His wife's death seriously affected him, and he died at Dublin in a state of mental infirmity on the 10th of October 1783. His daughter, Charlotte Brooke, published the poetical works of Henry Brooke in 1792, but was able to supply very little biographical material. Other sources for Brooke's biography are C.H. Wilson, Brookiana Two Volumes, 1804, and a biographical preface by E.A. Baker prefixed to a new edition 1906 of The Fool of Quality. Brooke's other works include several tragedies, only some of which were actually staged. He also wrote, Jack the Giant Queller 1748, an operatic satire, the repetition of which was forbidden on account of its political allusions, Constantia or The Man of Law's Tale, 1741, contributed to George Ogle's Canterbury Tales Modernized, Juliet Grenville, or The History of the Human Heart, 1773, a novel, and some fables contributed to Edward Moore's Fables for the Female Sex, 1744, Brooke, Sir James 1803-1868, English soldier, traveler and Raja of Sarawak, was born at Coombe Grove near Bath, on the 29th of April 1803. His father, a member of the civil service of the East India Company, had long lived in Bengal. His mother was a woman of superior mind, and to her care he out his careful early training. He received the ordinary school education, entered the service of the East India Company, and was sent out to India about 1825. On the outbreak of the Burmese War he was dispatched with his regiment to the valley of the Brahmaputra, and, being dangerously wounded in an engagement near Rangpur was compelled to a return home 1826. After his recovery he traveled on the continent before going to India, and circumstances led him soon after to leave the service of the company. In 1830 he made a voyage to China, and during his passage among the islands of the Indian archipelago, so rich in natural beauty, magnificence and fertility, but occupied by a population of savage tribes, continually at war with each other and carrying on a system of piracy on a vast scale and with relentless ferocity. He conceived the great design of rescuing them from barbarism and bringing them within the pale of civilization. His purpose was confirmed by observations made during a second visit to China, and on his return to England he applied himself in earnest to making the necessary preparations. Having succeeded on the death of his father to a large property, he bought and equipped a yacht, the Royalist, of 140 tons burden and for three years tested its capacities and trained his crew of B.04P.064520 men, chiefly in the Mediterranean. At length, on the 27th of October 1838, he sailed from the Thames on his great adventure. On reaching Borneo, after various delays, he found the Rajamudad Hassan, 
uncle of the reigning sultan, engaged in war in the province of Sarawak with several of the Dayak tribes, who had revolted against the sultan. He offered his aid to the Raja, and with his crew, and some Javanese who had joined them. He took part in a battle with the insurgents, and they were defeated. For his services the title of Raja of Sarawak was conferred on him by Mudad Hassan, the former Raja being deprived in his favor. It was, however, some time before the Sultan could be induced to confirm his title September 1841. During the next five years Raja Brook was engaged in establishing his power, in making just reforms in administration, preparing a code of laws and introducing just and humane modes of dealing with the degraded subjects of his rule. But this was not all. He looked forward to the development of commerce as the most effective means of putting an end to the worst evils that afflicted the archipelago, and in order to make this possible, the way must first be cleared by the suppression, or a considerable diminution, of the prevailing piracy, which was not only a curse to the savage tribes engaged in it, but a standing danger to European and American traders in those seas. Various expeditions were therefore organized and sent out against the marauders, Dyaks and Malays and sometimes even Arabs, Captain afterwards Admiral Sir Harry Keppel, and other commanders of British ships of war, received permission to company operate with Roger Brooke in these expeditions. The pirates were attacked in their strongholds. They fought desperately, and the slaughter was immense. Negotiations with the chiefs had been tried, and tried in vain. The capital of the Sultan of Borneo was bombarded and stormed, and the Sultan with his army routed. He was, however, soon after restored to his dominion. So large was the number of natives, pirates and others, slain in these expeditions, that the head money awarded by the British government to those who had taken part in them amounted to no less than L20.000. In October 1847 Roger Brooke returned to England, where he was well received by the government, and the Corporation of London conferred on him the freedom of the city, the island of Labuan, with its dependencies having been acquired by purchase from the Sultan of Borneo, was erected into a British colony, and Roger Brooke was appointed governor and commander-in-chief. He was also named consul general in Borneo. These appointments had been made before his arrival in England. The University of Oxford conferred on him the honorary degree of DCL and in 1848 he was created KCB. He soon after returned to Sarawak, and was carried thither by a British man-of-war. In the summer of 1849 he led an expedition against the Saraibas and Sakurandiaks, who still persisted in their piratical practices and refused to submit to British authority. Their defeat and wholesale slaughter was a matter of course. At the time of this engagement Sir James Brooke was lying ill with dysentery. He visited twice the capital of the Sultan of Sulla, and concluded a treaty with him, which had for one of its objects the expulsion of the sea gypsies and other tribes from his dominions. In 1851 grave charges with respect to the operations in Borneo were brought against Sir James Brooke in the House of Commons by Joseph Hume and other members, especially as to the head money received to meet these accusations, and to vindicate his proceedings. He came to England. The evidence adduced was so conflicting that the matter was at length referred to a royal commission to sit at Singapore. As the result of its investigation the charges were declared to be not proven. Sir James however, was soon after deprived of the governorship of Labuan, and the head money was abolished. In 1867 his house in Sarawak was attacked and burnt by Chinese pirates, and he had to fly from the capital, Kuching. With a small force he attacked the Chinese, recovered the town, made a great slaughter of them, and drove away the rest. In the following year he came to England, 
and remained there for three years. During this time he was attacked by paralysis. A public subscription was raised, and an estate in Devonshire was bought and presented to him. He made two more visits to Sarawak, and on each occasion had a rebellion to suppress. He spent his last days on his estate at Periatter in Devonshire, and died there, on the 11th of June 1868, being succeeded as Raja of Sarawak by his nephew. Sir James Brooke was a man of the highest personal character, and he displayed rare courage both in his conflicts in the East and under the charges advanced against him in England. His private letters 1838-1853 were published in 1853. Portions of his journal were edited by Captains Monday and Kepal. See also Sir Alwak, Brooke, Ethiopia Authority Augustus 1832, English Divine and Man of Letters, born at Letterkenny, Donegal, Ireland, in 1832, was educated at Trinity College, Dublin. He was ordained in the Church of England in 1857, and held various charges in London. From 1863 to 1865 he was chaplain to the Empress Frederick in Berlin and in 1872 he became chaplain in ordinary to Queen Victoria, but in 1880 he seceded from the church, being no longer able to accept its leading dogmas, and officiated as a Unitarian minister for some years at Bedford Chapel, Bloomsbury. Bedford Chapel was pulled down about 1894, and from that time he had no church of his own, but his eloquence and powerful religious personality continued to make themselves felt among a wide circle, a man of independent means. He was always keenly interested in literature and art, and a fine critic of both. He published in 1865 his life and letters of F.W. Robertson of Brighton, and in 1876 wrote an admirable primer of English literature new and revised education 1900, followed in 1892 by the history of early English literature two volumes, 1892 down to the accession of Alfred, and English literature from the beginnings to the Norman Conquest 1898. His other works include various volumes of sermons, poems 1888, Dove Cottage 1890, Theology in the English Poets Cooper, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Burns 1874, Tennyson, His Art and Relation to Modern Life 1894, The Poetry of Robert Browning 1902, On Ten Plays of Shakespeare 1905, and The Life Superlative 1906, Brook Farm, The Name Applied to a Tract of Land in West Roxbury. Massachusetts, on which in 1841-1847 a communistic experiment was unsuccessfully tried. The experiment was one of the practical manifestations of the spirit of transcendentalism. In New England, though many of the more prominent transcendentalists took no direct part in it, the project was originated by George Ripley, who also virtually directed it throughout. In his words it was intended to ensure a more natural union between intellectual and manual labor than now exists to combine the thinker and the worker, as far as possible, in the same individual, to guarantee the highest mental freedom by providing all with labor adapted to their tastes and talents, and securing to them the fruits of their industry, to do away with the necessity of menial services by opening the benefits of education and the profits of labor to all, and thus to prepare a society of liberal, intelligent and cultivated persons whose relations with each other would permit a more simple and wholesome life than can be led amidst the pressure of our competitive institutions. In short, its aim was to bring about the best conditions for an ideal civilization, reducing to a minimum the labor necessary for mere existence, and by this and by the simplicity of its social machinery saving the maximum of time for mental and spiritual education and development.
at a time when Ralph Waldo Emerson could write to Thomas Carlyle, We are all a little wild here with numberless projects of social reform, not a reading man but has a draft of a new community in his waistcoat pocket. The Brook Farm project certainly did not appear as impossible a scheme as many others that were in the air. At all events it enlisted the company operation of men whose subsequent careers show them to have been something more than visionaries. The association bought a tract of land about 10 meters from Boston, and in the summer of 1841 began its enterprise with about 20 members. In September the Brook Farm Institute of Agriculture and Education was formally organized. The members V.04P.0646 signing the Articles of Association and forming an unincorporated joint stock company. The farm was assiduously, if not very skillfully, cultivated, and other industries were established most of the members paying by labor for their board but nearly all of the income, and sometimes all of it, was derived from the school, which deservedly took high rank and attracted many pupils. Among these were included George William Curtis and his brother James Burial Curtis, Father Isaac Thomas Hecker 1819-1888, General Francis C. Barlow 1834-1896, who as Attorney General of New York in 1871-1873 took a leading part in the prosecution of the Tweed Ring. For three years the undertaking went on quietly and simply, subject to few outward troubles other than financial, the number of associates increasing to 70 or 80. It was during this period that Nathaniel Hawthorne had his short experience of Brook Farm, of which so many suggestions appear in the Blythe Adol Romance, though his preface to a later editions effectually disposed of the idea which gave him great pain that he had either drawn his characters from persons there, or had meant to give any actual description of the colony. Emerson refused, in a kind and characteristic letter, to join the undertaking. And though he afterwards wrote of Brook Farm with not uncharitable humor as a perpetual picnic, a French Revolution in small, an age of reason in a pappy pan, among its founders were many of his near friends. In 1844, the growing need of a more scientific organization, and the influence which FMC Fourier's doctrines, as modified by Albert Brisbane 1809-1890, had gained in the minds of Ripley and many of his associates, combined to change the whole plan of the community. It was transformed, with the strong approval of all its chief members and the consent of the rest, into a Fourierist phalanx in 1845. There was an accession of new members, a momentary increase of prosperity, a brilliant new undertaking in the publication of a weekly journal, The Harbinger, in which Ripley, Charles A. Dana, Francis G. Shaw and John S. Dwight were the chief writers, and to which James Russell Lowell, J.G. Whittier, George William Curtis, Park Godwin, T.W. Higginson, Horace Greeley and many more now and then contributed, but the individuality of the old Brook Farm was gone. The association was not rescued even from financial troubles by the change. With increasing difficulty it kept on till the spring of 1846, when a fire which destroyed its nearly completed felon street brought losses which caused, or certainly gave the final ostensible reason for, its dissolution. The experiment was abandoned in the autumn of 1847. Besides Ripley and Hawthorne, the principal members of the community were Charles A. Dana, John S. Dwight, Minot Pratsy 1805-1878, the head farmer, who, like George Partridge Bradford 1808-1890, left in 1845, and Warren Burton 1810-1866 a preacher and, later, a writer on educational subjects, indirectly connected with the experiment, also, 
as visitors for longer or shorter periods but never as regular members, were Emerson, Amos Bronson Alcott, Orestes A. Brown Song, Theodore Parker and William Henry Channing, Margaret Fuller and Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, the estate itself, after passing through various hands, came in 1870 into the possession of the Association of the Evangelical Lutheran Church for Works of Mercy, which established here an orphanage, known as the Martin Luther Orphan Home. The best account of Brook Farm is Lindsay Swift's Brook Farm, its members, scholars and visitors New York, 1900, Brook Farm, Historic and Personal Memoirs Boston, 1894, is by Drive J.T. Cobman, one of the pupils in the school. See also Maurice Hillquitt's History of Socialism in the United States New York, 1903, E.L.B. Illustration, Figure 2, Paleopithila, Group of Plants Bearing Mature Sporogonia, from Cook, Handbook of British Hepatiki, Illustration, Figure 3, Paleopithila, a longitudinal section of thallus at the time of fertilization, and, Antheridia, R. Artigonia, in involucre. The longitudinal section of almost mature sporogonium attached to the thallus, in involucre, calcoliptra, f foot, s seated, caps, capsule semi-diagrammatic, illustration, figure 2, paleopithila, group of plants bearing mature sporogonia, from Cook, handbook of British hepatiki, paleopithila figure 2 can be found at any season growing in large patches on the damp soil of woods, banks, and sea. The broad flat thallus is green and maybe a couple of inches long. It is sparingly branched. The branching being apparently dichotomous, the growing point is situated in a depression at the anterior end of each branch. The wing-like lateral portions of the thallus gradually thin out from the midrib, from the projecting lower surface of this numerous rhizoid spring. These are elongated superficial cells, and serve to fix the thallus to the soil and obtain water and salts from it. No leaf-like appendages are borne on the thallus but short glandular hairs occur behind the apex. The plant is composed throughout of very similar living cells, the more superficial ones containing numerous chlorophyll grains, while starch is stored in the internal cells of the midrib. The cells contain a number of oil bodies the function of which is imperfectly understood. The growth of the thallus proceeds by the regular segmentation of a single apical cell. The sexual organs are born on the upper surface and both Antheridia and Archegonia occur on the same branch figure 3. A. The Antheridia are scattered over the middle region of the thallus, and each is surrounded by a tubular upgrowth from the surface. The Archegonia are developed in a group behind the apex, and the latter continues to grow for a time after their formation, so that they come to be seated in a depression of the upper surface. They are further protected by the growth of the hinder margin of the depression to form a scale like involucre in fertilization takes place about June, and the sporogonium is fully developed by the winter. The embryo developed from the fertilized ovum consists at first of a number of tiers of cells. Its terminal tier gives rise to the capsule. The first divisions in the four cells of the tier marking off the wall of the capsule from the cells destined to produce the spores. In figure 4. See which represents a longitudinal section of a young embryo of Pelia. These archosporial cells are shaded. The tears below give rise to the seed and foot. The mature sporogonium figure 3. B consists of the foot embedded in the tissue of the thallus. The seed, which remains short until just before the shedding of the spores. And the spherical capsule. It remains for long enclosed within the calyptra formed by the further development of the archigonial wall and surmounted by the neck of the archigonium. The calyptra is ultimately burst through, and in early spring the seed elongates rapidly, 
raising the dark-colored capsule figure 2. In the young condition the wall of the capsule, which consists of two layers of cells, encloses a mass of similar cells developed from the archosporium. Some of these become spore mother cells and give rise by cell division to four spores, while others remain undivided and become the elaters. The latter are elongated spindle-shaped cells with thick brown spiral bands on the inside of their thin walls. They radiate out from a small plug of sterile cells projecting into the base of the capsule, and some are attached to this, while others lie free among the spores. The latter are large, and at first are unicellular, but in pelia, which in this respect is exceptional, they commence their further development within the capsule, and thus consist of several cells when shed. V.04P.0647 The cells of the capsule wall have incomplete, brown, thickened rings on their walls, and the capsule opens by splitting into four valves, which bend away from one another, allowing the loose spores to be readily dispersed by the wind, assisted by the hygroscopic movements of the elators. On falling upon damp soil the spores germinate, growing into a phallus, which gradually attains its full size and bears sexual organs. Illustration, Figure 4 Semi-diagrammatic figures of young embryos of liverworts in longitudinal section. The cells which will produce the sporogenous tissue are shaded, after key and its gerloff and ligba, a richa, b. mercadia polymorpha, c. pelia epiphila, d. antoceros laevis, e. cephalozia bicuspidata, f. radula complainata. While the general course of the life history of all liverworts resembles that of pelia, the three great groups into which they are divided differ from one another in the characters of both generations. Each group exhibits a series leading from more simple to more highly organized forms, and the differentiation has proceeded on distinct and to some extent divergent lines in the three groups. The mercadiales are a series of forms, in which the structure of the thallus is specialized to enable them to live in more exposed situations. The lowest members of the series rich possess the simplest sporogonia known consisting of a wall of one layer of cells enclosing the spores. In the higher forms a sterile foot and seta is present, and sterile cells or elaters occur with the spores. The lower members of the younger menials are also thyloid, but the thallus never has the complicated structure characteristic of the mercadiales, and progress is in the direction of the differentiation of the plant into stem and leaf. Indications of how this may have come about are afforded by the lower group of the anacrogynous younger menaceae. And throughout the Acrogynous younger Maniaki the plant has well-marked stem and leaves. The Sporogonium even in the simplest forms has a sterile foot. But in the series also the origin of elaters from sterile cells can be traced. The Anthocerotales are a small and very distinct group, in which the gametophyte is a phallus, while the Sporogonium possesses a sterile columella and is capable of long-continued growth and spore production. The mode of development of the sporogonium presents important differences in the three series that may be briefly referred to here. In figure 4 young sporogonia of a number of liverworts are shown in longitudinal section, and the archosporial cells from which the spores and elaters will arise are shaded. In rich a figure 4, of the whole mass of cells derived from the ovum forms a spherical capsule, the only sterile tissue being the single layer of peripheral cells forming the wall. In other mercadiales figure 4. Be the lower half of the embryo separated by the first transverse wall 1, I forms the sterile foot and seed, while in the upper half of the peripheral layer forms the wall of the capsule, enclosing the archosporial cells from which spores and elaters arise. In the younger menials figure 4, CEF the embryo is formed of a number of tiers of cells, and the archosporium is defined by the first divisions parallel to the surface in the cells of one or more of the upper tiers.
a number of tears go to form the seed and foot, while the lowest segment usually forms a small appendage of the latter. In the Antocero tales figure 4, did the lowest tears form? 